and welcome back Captain Squadron. Squadron. I am I am Dove. It is very nice to be here with everybody tonight. And we are excited to have a writer with us a little bit of reader. We have the amazing Keith. Keith, how are you? And thank you for joining us in the Captain Squadron. Section 31 and a half. I'm glad to be here. I should point out that my last name is pronounced Dikendido. Oh, but, Candido, um, Damn it, Joe! <laughs> <laughs> Damn it! You have like 60 seconds and you're already screwing it up! <laughs> it's fine. Everybody gets it wrong. This is this is my life, is correcting people's uh, <laughs> uh, mispronunciation uh, of my last name. I am I am I am very well used to it. It's okay. He's been calling me by the wrong name for two years now, so it's fine. Yeah, I try. <laughs> you know, it's. I feel like it's my uh, modus operandi to to mess up people's names. So not just names, but that's okay. Oh. <laughs> so Keith, I had the distinct honor of joining you on stage at a convention, and in doing so, I said, "Hey." How would you like to uh, be a guest on our show? And you were gracious enough to join us, and we really appreciate it. But I got to ask right away, what started your journey into science fi writing? Um, I don't remember that far back because it was kind of always there. Um, my parents uh, are also science fiction fans. Um, they uh, They were never involved in, like, capital F fandom. They didn't, like, go to conventions or anything like that. But they were... Um, were and are uh, dedicated readers uh, of science fiction and also uh, watchers of science fiction television. Um, they watched Star Trek when it first aired uh, in the 60s. And uh, and I grew up watching Star Trek uh, here in New York City um, in the 70s. It was aired on Channel 11 every weeknight at 6 o'clock. And so that was our routine. We would watch Star Trek at 6 and then we'd eat dinner at 7. That was, <laughs> that was what we did once we all got home from school and work. And um, and we used to, they gave, once I was old enough to read on my own, they gave me um, stuff like uh, The Hobbit and uh, the Earthsea Trilogy by Ursula Le Guin, uh, Robert Heinlein's YA books, uh, stuff like that. Um, so the, the, the interest in science fiction and fantasy was always there. Uh, and I always wanted to write. I always wanted to be somebody who would make stories. The, the first thing I wrote was when I was six years old. It was called Reflections in My Mirror. Uh, I did it on construction paper at summer camp. It's terrible. I was six, but um, but I, that was that. I've I've been writing like since then. Um, they didn't start paying me for it until much later, but um, uh, but I, it's 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 something I've always loved. I've always been a I've always been a, a devotee of science fiction, both uh, on screen and in print. Nice, nice. Jason? So, um, I, I don't know if you know, but I am also a fellow science fiction author, self-published, and uh, I am proud to say that my book was purchased by almost a dozen people. My, my question to you is, um, what does it take, in your opinion, to break into the, uh, the professional writing biz? Asking for a friend, of course. Because I'm already there. I tell if I know. Um, <laughs> so 
there is no one way to do it. Um, you ask any 10 writers how they broke in, you get 12 different answers. Um, <laughs> my own way of doing it was actually completely back asswards because I started out working as an editor. Uh, I worked for a book packager uh, named Byron Price uh, throughout from 1993 until uh, 99. And uh, well, till 98, and then I was freelance for him for a while uh, after that. Um, so I kind of backed into it that way because um, the, the editorial stuff I was doing gave me the opportunity to pitch uh, to um, to uh, anthologies first and then, and then you know, making the connections to pitch other tie-in things. Basically, the, the, the only way to do it, I mean, the, the, one of the ways to do it is to just submit things to large publishers. And if they turn you down, submit it to another publisher. And then work your way down. The, the advantage is, and, and the biggest advantage now, as opposed to when I broke in 30 years ago, um, is that you have a lot of options. You don't just have like the major New York publishers, and if they don't publish it, you're out of luck. Um, you can you can go with a, a medium sized press. You can go with a small press. You can self publish. Um, there are there are tons of options. Um, then you can still get your stuff out there. It's it's a lot like what's happened with television. Like you know, television used to be if you were in on one of the big three networks, that was it. You know, that was those that was your that was your choice. Now there's tons of choices, and they all have different levels of, of audience penetration, which is also true of of um, of publishing. You know, a book published by Simon and Schuster or by Macmillan or or by Penguin Random House is probably going to reach more people, or at least theoretically reach more people than one published by a small press running out of somebody's, you know, house in New Jersey. Um, but, and, and I say that as somebody who is doing quite well publishing with a small press that has run out of a house in New Jersey. But um, uh, the, um, uh, and you, or you could self-publish and as you say, you know, sell to dozens of people. Um, a dozen. There are, a dozen. Yeah. Well, I, I was being nice. <laughs> thank you thank you yeah. uh but there, there, there's i mean the, the best bet is to you know start out shooting high shoot for the moon first uh if that doesn't work work your way down you know um and and do your research you know see what what imprints are publishing stuff in the genre you are writing in because every every publisher has you know different sub imprints of that, that specialize in different things um and you know it's it's easy enough to find out who the editor is you know the stuff you can look up online fairly easily um if they only take agent and submissions then you want to try to find an agent which is a whole other process which is completely different from the way it was when i started so i can't help you at all in that regard <laughs> but, um, I've, I've had the same agent for 20 years so oh wow um uh and 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 i had, had an advantage in that i was because i worked as an editor for so long and was working as an editor at the time um I knew most of the editors working in science fiction at the time. Uh, that is no longer the case because there's a lot more of them and some of them retired or moved on or died or something. Um, but of the ones I worked with, uh, my, my agent is uh, Lucienne Diver of the Night Agency. She was one of the ones I really liked. Um, and, and, and more to the point, she was somebody who I saw as really um, advocating for her clients. Like there were some agents that were very easy for me to work with as an editor, but that wasn't something I wanted. <laughs> you know, um, I, I wanted somebody who was going to fight for me, but who would also, you know, 
not be a pain in the ass and and she does that um so yeah i mean there there's there are so many different ways to break in and and they're all incredibly heartbreaking and difficult uh and soul destroying uh but it's worth it if you wind up with a book with your name on it in the end so there you go so did you have a lot of yeah, heartbreak lot of when you doing um i like I said, my method of breaking in was completely wrong <laughs> uh, and atypical. I, I I started out doing tie-in stuff, which doesn't usually happen. Um, you know, I pitched short stories to people I was working with. Um, and uh, and then my first novel actually came about because my, uh, my boss was too cheap to give me a raise, so he gave me a novel contract instead. Um, so uh, it just... It, it, I, I got into it in a weird way. Um, uh, having said that, sure, there's plenty of heartbreak. Happens all the freaking time. Um, I've, I've, I've had projects yanked out from under me. I've had oh. things not work out. Um, there, there were uh, two tie-in projects that I, that I did that I did quite a bit of work on that wound up not happening. Um, I have written two movie novelizations that were never published. Oh. Um, wow. In one case, because the movie never happened. Oh. <laughs> Star Trek Four, uh, uh, but no, uh, no, 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 it was nothing. It, it was way more ridiculous. Than that. The other one, I can't say what I, I can't say what it is, but uh, it was, uh, and and I and I got paid for it, but not very well. Um, I I was I I took a low advance because the movie in question, I figured was going to be successful, and I was right about that. Um. And they gave me a very good royalty rate on it. So I took a lower advance, figuring I'd make money on the back end, except, of course, they never published it. Then the publisher went out of business anyway, so I wouldn't have gotten any royalty. Jeez. So, um, so how does it... Uh, oh, that was it. Yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> how does it work to actually be able to write within so many different franchises? Because you're not only writing with Star Trek, you're writing with Farscape and, and a, a litany of different uh, science fiction masterpieces. So, like, how does it work? Do you have to bug Paramount, or like, how does that whole process come together? The the tie-in fiction starts with the publisher, not with the writer. Um, so, a publisher will buy the rights from whoever owns it. Um, you know, like like for example, uh, uh, Titan Books bought the rights from Warner Brothers to do books based on Supernatural. Um, and and they did like 17 books or so uh the uh um at the time it was 20th century fox now it's disney um but titan also uh, did uh does alien and predator books that they bought the rights from 20th century fox at the time to do that um simon and schuster has had the rights to do star trek novels since uh since 1981. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, wow. uh, well, technically since 79, because they did the motion picture novelization. Um, but then the, the first book came out in 81. Um, and they've had that license. They just renew that license every year. But it always, like I said, it starts with the publisher. And then the editors at the publishing company turn around and hire somebody to write the book. Um, usually they will go with people who are established in some way, um, which is why me breaking in as a tie-in writer is unusual. Um, normally they want to go with somebody who has experience, um, simply because there's a lot of extra crap you have to deal with when you're, when you're editing a tie-in book, everything has to be approved. 
Um, there has to be the plot outline has to be approved. Then the manuscript has to be approved. The cover art has to be approved. Sometimes the interior design has to be approved. Um, and so you've got all that extra stuff that the editor has to deal with. So they don't really have the time or the inclination to also walk a newbie through the process on top of that. And, and uh, tie-in fiction is much more deadline intensive because it's much more aggressively scheduled. So you have to be, they want somebody who has a track record of turning things in on time, mm. which, is, which is a very important uh, part of the process. So, um, so they tend to hire people who have some kind of track record. Gotcha. Even if it's not necessarily in tie-in fiction. So, so I have so, a question for you. I, I've noticed going through I hope I have an answer for you. <laughs> well, we'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> I, I noticed while I was fondling your, your bibliography yeah. here, you write a lot of video game adaptations and that piqued my interest. So I want to know what, how is writing a video game adaptation such as uh, uh, Alien Isolation? Because that was the one that caught me right there because I love that game. Uh, how does something like that differ from writing uh, in a universe based on visual media like television or movies? Um, it depends. Well, there's a certain amount of visuals associated with Alien Isolation too. There were there were you know uh, all the various cutscenes in the uh, in the game. Um, so I had some visuals to work with, but uh, it's it's an interesting, it's a different challenge because of course the needs of a game are different from the needs of fiction. The the, the Venn diagrams overlap somewhat, but not a hundred percent. And um, and there's a certain flexibility you've got when you're adapting a game. Um, because what happens in the game is changeable depending on who's playing and what they're doing whereas in a work of fiction everything's set um it's it's an interesting challenge some of them are more aggressively plotted out than others like for example i wrote a world of warcraft novel uh in 2006 called cycle of hatred there is no gaming universe more micromanaged than world of warcraft um and this is especially true in the early part of the uh, of the early 2000s when when it was at the height of its popularity um the the approval of my outline was delayed by a week because they were too busy installing six new servers to handle all the gamers um so uh that i worked very closely with blizzard on uh and they were very fussy about every single step of the process um other games are a little looser. Um, Alien Isolation had a pretty straightforward storyline um, that I was adapting. I had a certain amount of flexibility because you don't, you know, every play, like I said, every player does different things. And there are certain parts of it that were in there that were great for gameplay, but made for very uninteresting fiction. Um, so I would skip over them or just have them happen quickly or something. Plus on top of that, part of my remit with that book was to not just novelize the game, but also to provide uh, backstory for the character, the main character of the game, who was Amanda Ripley, uh, Ellen Ripley's daughter, and uh, getting to develop her was actually that was a lot of fun. Uh, that was that was that was the most enjoyable part of the book for me was was fleshing out her character and also getting to see more of Ellen Ripley before the first movie. Wow! Um, <clears throat> so when you, so you write deeply into these different franchises, do you like zone in and focus and? like avoid all contact with other franchises so that you can kind of come up with these wonderful stories stories uh, not quite that much i don't i don't completely isolate myself but i do tend to immerse myself in the particular universe um i if it's something that is relatively small scale i'll try i'll like sit and watch all of it um for example i did a leverage novel back in 2013 um 
and I sat and I watched all of Leverage that was available up to that point. Um, obviously, if I'm writing a Star Trek story, that is not practical. Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but I will, if, if it's a Star Trek story, I will pick out particular episodes and or movies that relate to what I'm writing. Um, you know, the stuff stuff that, 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 like if I'm doing a Klingon book, I'll, I'll grab a bunch of Klingon episodes and, and just go through them just to get to get the the get it all in my head and and but plus when you're watching it when you're researching it as opposed to watching it for fun you're looking for different things and paying attention to different things um i noticed that especially when i was when i was going through leverage because i was just watching it as a fan up until i got the novel contract um and and for that matter when i got the gig to write the farscape comic book um i hadn't actually sat down and watched farscape in a while when i got the gig um so so I got so the first thing I did was just mainline the whole freaking thing, um, which was great, which was tremendous fun. And, and and it's so much easier to do now. When I first got into the business in, in the late 90s, research was they sent you VHS tapes, which had like maybe one or two episodes on it. So you get this huge, big pile of VHS tapes. Um, now I just, you know, call it up on my computer. It's fantastic. It's so much easier. <laughs> it is amazing. <laughs> it really is. I love living in the 21st century. Anyway, it, it is a so lot yeah. of fun. Yes. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I try to immerse myself in the universe. You know how they talk, what you know what what the feel what the feel of uh, and the vibe of of the actual storyline is because every 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 universe has its own feel. Um, the feel of Farscape is completely different from the feel of Star Trek, which is completely different from the feel of Andromeda, mm. which is completely different from the feel of Alien. You know. Um, you know, Alien in particular, it's it's a very dark, depressing, and also very much a working class um, setting. You know, one of the things I love I love about the Alien franchise, or at least before the most recent movies, is that it's not about the shining lights of of the future. It's about the truckers. It's about the longshoremen. It's about the Marines. It's about you know uh, the the everyday people who get caught up in this nonsense. Um, and and there's a certain um, beat up quality to the technology that I really like. You know, the 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 alien the alien universe feels particularly well lived in, uh, and I tried to convey that when I was writing the book. Um, so yeah, there's 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 a certain amount of immersion that that you have to do. I don't completely cut myself off from everything else. That's silly. Um, I mean, some people have to do that. I shouldn't say it's silly. It, I don't need to do that. Um, and and that's another thing. If you ask any ten writers what their process is, you also get twelve different answers. Um, <laughs> Because everybody's got their own way of doing things, uh, and and the important thing is to find out what works for you, um, and also enables you to actually you know get stuff done. Uh, I know some writers whose process is such that they never actually finish anything, which means they don't, their careers don't go anywhere, and that's bad. But uh, except for George R. R. Martin, George R. R. Martin, he finished lots of things. He's <laughs> okay. George had a very long career before the first Game of Thrones book came out. Oh, okay. Um, oh, okay. You know, that was not his, he, he didn't come out of nowhere to do a Game of Thrones. That was like his, I don't know, 20th novel or something. Um, plus he had a career in Hollywood. You know, this is not. Damn it, Joe, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> oh, no, don't say that. I just, he's known to not have finished. The, the, the... Oh, yeah, no, I, he, yes, he, 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 he his, his inability to finish the most recent book uh, in the series is getting kind of hilarious at this point. But, um. But you know, again, everybody has their own process, and you know, there's 
been stuff happening with with that franchise and he can do whatever he wants okay i mean he's george rr martin he takes another 10 years you know what george you do it you do it till it's ready all right jace your question okay so uh let's talk about the process a little bit let's say that uh someone comes up to you and says um we want you to write a uh we want you to write a book based on I don't know, Stranger Things, you know, uh, something you haven't written about before. Beginning to end, what describe what your process would be in this totally fictionalized uh, writer's contract that you just got. Uh, well, the first thing I'd have to do is actually watch Stranger Things, which I haven't yet. It's on the very long list of TV shows that I really want to watch at some point and just haven't yet because there's way too many TV shows on the air now. Um, having said that, um, uh, the, the, like I said, the first thing I would do is, and even, and this would be true even if I had been watching the show regularly, I would sit down and watch it all again. Um, and it would depend on whether they just said, we want you to pitch us a book or we have a story idea for you. Um, most of the time, they're looking for the writers to come up with pitches. That's what they, they hire us for. There are some licenses, though, where they give you at least a thumbnail or, or a log line or something to as a starting point. Um, for example, I did a Sleepy Hollow novel based on the TV show from the mid 2010s, um, and they gave they gave me like three or four different one sentence springboards that that they would they wanted us to they wanted me to use uh, as a possible storyline. I still had to come up with an actual plot based on. I'm, that. I'm sorry. Whenever you say a whenever you say a one sentence springboard, what do you mean by that? Uh, one sentence that just basically is is a quick a quick pitch of what the story is oh okay or at least the starting point of the story you know um you know like for example my first star trek novel was uh Worf's first mission as federation ambassador so that would be you know that's the log line Worf's first mission as federation ambassador after the ds9 finale um you know the articles of the federation was a year in the life of the federation president that that's that sort of thing um so so then I would sit down and I would binge Stranger Things, and and assuming they and then I would you know I would start thinking about you know okay what kind of story can I do, and then I try to come up with several different pitches of novels because a lot of times when you pitch something it gets rejected for reasons that have nothing to do with the quality of it but because it doesn't work for them for one reason or another. Um, particularly if it's something that's ongoing, a lot of times you'll pitch something it's like nope sorry we're doing something like that in season two. Um, which 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 literally happened with the Sleepy Hollow book. I I came up I, in this particular instance. I not only mainlined the show because Sleepy Hollow was so aggressively tied into the American Revolution. Uh, I went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art here in New York. Went to the American Wing and was checking out some of the Revolutionary War era art uh, just to see what kind of just to see if anything prompted a story notion and something did. They had a, an elegant sword. That was awarded to uh, heroes of uh, the revolution on the on the colonial side, and uh, they were issued in seventeen seventy five, but not actually distributed until seventeen eighty five because it was a silversmith in Paris who had to actually make them. Um, so I pitched that the idea that those swords were also magical objects because that's what Sleepy Hollow did it added magic to the Revolutionary War. Um, pitch it to them. Fox came back, said, great, we love the idea. It can't be a sword. 
Because it turns out they were doing a magic sword story in season two. I had no way of knowing that. The season two hadn't happened yet. Um, so I made it something else. But um, so the, 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 the plot still worked. I just had to change the details because I, was, I didn't want to step on something they were already doing. Um, and that's that that sort of thing, especially when something is ongoing, is is a, is is always a risk that you'll do something that contradicts something they, they're planning in the future. Um, so, uh, so you usually, and also sometimes they just won't like stuff. So you try to come up with two or three ideas. Um, when I was invited to pitch Supernatural, I pitched two different ideas. They liked one of them. Uh, I wrote that, and then it did really well. And they said, "Hey, can you write another one?" I said, "Well, I just sent you another pitch." I said, "Right, yes, do that one." <laughs> so, uh, is there a particular Star Trek franchise that you enjoy writing most? Are there particular characters that you love, and then you want to go back and write more on their their universe? Um, I was fortunate enough to work on two uh, two series that originated in prose. Uh, New Frontier kind of broke the dam on that uh, when that came out in 1997. Mm -hmm. um, right. Uh, the the that up, up until New Frontier debuted in 97, Star Trek novels had to tie into one of the TV shows. That was that was required. Uh, they tried New Frontier as an experiment that summer. Um, it sold like crazy. Uh, and so they kept doing it. <laughs> and they started doing other stuff that wasn't based on a specific TV show, but was like they did a series of novels of Riker, Captain Riker on the USS Titan. Um, Michael J. Freeman did a bunch of books uh, to place on the Stargazer when when Picard first took command of her, you know, 20 years prior to, to Next Gen. Um, and, uh, and and there was the Vanguard series, which, which told stories in the original series era uh, on a Starbase. And uh, I also did, I did a, a about five books based, four or five books, uh, taking place on a Klingon ship called the IKS Gorkon. Um, and I had so much fun with that. That was, I, I enjoyed the hell out of that. I loved writing those characters. I, every time I wrote one of those books, it was effortless. Um, those, those characters were so very much in my head <laughs> that, I mean, particularly when I wrote, uh, I remember writing the third book and it's like, everything was just flowing beautifully. It was really, it was, it was wonderful. Um, and then also uh, in 2000, uh, John Ordover, who was one of the, the editors at Simon & Schuster at the time, and I created the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series, which was uh, an ebook original series uh, before ebook original series were a thing. Uh, we were a bit ahead of our time on this. Um, this started in 2000. They canceled it in 2007, six months before the Kindle was launched. The timing could not have been worse. Um, it's like they could have just given us another year. Um, but uh, but we did a we did a monthly series of novellas starring uh, the Corps of Engineers, and that I was the editor in charge of that. Uh, they hired me on, on a freelance basis to edit that, and I also wrote several of the novellas in the in the series as well. And that was that was so much fun. I that was like show writing a TV show in so many ways. Um, and and I really we just the, the a bunch of different writers uh, who have continued to work in, in uh, Star Trek worked on that, including David Mack, Dayton Warden, Kevin Dilmore. Uh, Ilsa J. Bick, um, uh, and and some other people who who uh, William Leisner, um, and and a bunch of people who who hadn't done Trek before or much Trek before and and came in to do that like Aaron Rosenberg, uh, Glenn Howman, Lauren J. Coleman, and Randall Bills, um, 
and uh and i'm forgetting some people but but it was it was great uh it was it was really fun what you know bouncing ideas off each other and doing things and stuff um and uh and and we really i really enjoyed that so that was th those two just because i was involved in the so heavily involved in them and and not just not just writing them but also in developing them in, uh and and creating the series now, did you end up running around New York City screaming in Klingon? No, no. Oh, I would. <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I don't know very much Klingon. I I, I have I have people for that. I, um, I am I am friends with Dr. Lawrence Schoen, who is the head of the Klingon Language Institute. I'm friends with Mark Okren to develop the language, um, and and I just basically I consult them when I need Klingon terms. I actually I love this story. Uh, when I was writing uh, a Time for War, a Time for Peace. Mm -hmm. uh, which was the last part of the Time 2 series that, that ran through 2004 that was chronicling the year leading up to Star Trek Nemesis for the next-gen crew. Oh. And um, I needed a name for a bloodletting ritual. And so I emailed Lawrence and I said, hey, I need a name for a bloodletting ritual. This is what it's for, this, that, and the other thing. Let me know. The book's due in two weeks, so I kind of... Uh, two weeks pass. Um done with the book. I've read it over. It's all ready to go, except I don't have a name for the bloodletting ritual. I email Lawrence. I say, Lawrence, I need this. And if you don't give me something, I'm going to make something up. And I know how much you hate that. <laughs> Turns out I started a major argument amongst the members of the Klingon Language Institute, who are all academics. Um, these are all, you know, professional linguists and, and, and linguistics professors and such. So they, and, and I mean, nothing like mean or the, you know, bl bladed weapons were not involved but there was a lot of arguing <laughs> and that is not uh, a true klingon argument <laughs> well um at least as far as i know there was no i mean they could they, they may have been just prettying it up for me i don't know but um so they gave me five different terms of which lauren said two of them were particularly good and of those two i picked the one that sounded cooler um but it was like that's the sort of thing that happens, but you know, people take this very seriously, which is, you know, which is great. I love, I love that there's an entire institute dedicated just to the Klingon language. Um, but, uh, but no, I, I, I know my limitations. I'm, I am not a linguist, and uh, I, I, there are people who have done, you know, a great deal of work in developing the Klingon language, and I'm more than happy to consult them on it. Um, I, I struggle enough with English, much less, you know, learning <laughs> something else. Yeah. <laughs> Jason. So um, you were talking about deadlines there a second ago, and that just actually rolled into my next question. Uh, how long from beginning to end does it usually take you to finish a, let's say, a TV tie-in novel? Is any generic one. How what is the what is the timeline on something like that? However long they give me. Um I've I've been given as much as six months, I've been given as little as two weeks. Um oh my god. Well, two and a half weeks. Uh, that, that two and a half weeks was for a movie novelization. I can't even um, write an email in two and a half weeks. <laughs> um, I the fastest I've written a straight up original novel is three weeks, um, which I've done a couple times. Uh, I prefer to have longer than that. Um, those were those in each case. Those were three very intense and very unpleasant weeks. Um, but uh, and and a couple of the movie novelizations I've done had to be done that quickly. I, I novelized uh, Serenity back in two thousand five. And I did that in two and a half weeks. And that was especially galling because I did it in, I had, I, I had to turn it in by the Monday of Thanksgiving week in 2004 because the movie was originally supposed to come out in April of 2005. 
So I turned it in. Um, my editor sent a copy off to production to start that process, sent it off to Universal for the approvals process. I took a nap, um, woke up Tuesday morning, and Joss Whedon gets on the internet and says, hey, kids, guess what? They moved the book from April to September. Oh. You know, you know the shot of the city skyline with somebody screaming? That was me. Um, <laughs> and uh, and the, the worst part was we couldn't verify it because it was Thanksgiving week. Everybody had gone home. We couldn't, you know, uh, we couldn't actually verify it with Universal until the following Monday. So I'm spending a week banging my head against the wall, thinking about all the sleep I missed. Um, but I mean, it was already it was already in the production queue anyway. There was nothing to be done about it. So I mean, I'm still happy with how the novelization turned out. I just could have had an easier time of it. Oof. But I I try to write to the deadline. Uh, one of the reasons why I got the Sleepy Hollow novel was because it had like a uh, six to eight week deadline, I think it was. Um, and I was, of all the people that the editor at Random House uh, queried about it, I was the only one who didn't balk at the deadline. Mm. And it's like, eight weeks! Luxury! Um, <laughs> so... So uh, just a quick question. It's all about questions, but uh, one of the things that I've noticed you brought up the fandom and a lot of people are very passionate about it. And you, you and I met at a convention and I'm sure that's not your convert, your first convention. So I'm, I'm wondering, does anybody take your book of work and get upset by something you've written and then confront you at a convention? Is it, have you ever had like an obsessed fan just pop up and argue you to death? I, no, um, I, I've had—I mean, I've had people argue with me about things, and and but no, it's always been you know friendly and 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 in the spirit of of in the spirit of fandom of of, of enjoying it and, and caring about the material. Um, uh, I mean, every once in a while you get somebody, you know, um, but not that much. I I I've had people who disagreed with my stuff or or didn't like my stuff, but it's. It's all. It's almost always been civil. Um, certainly, in-person interactions have always been civil. Um, I've, I've been, I've been, a, I've been attacked online a few times, but who hasn't? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, yeah. I mean, I, most most of the critiques people have had with with my interpretation of, of the universe has been friendly. Not always. Um, although my favorite was I, I, there were uh, there was a supernatural a couple of reviews of my super my first couple supernatural books. Um, and it was really hilarious because you'd see one on Amazon. There'd be one review that says he he get he writes Sam really well, but he obviously doesn't understand Dean at all. The very next review, he he got Dean right, but he obviously doesn't understand Sam at all. Um, I got that so much, and and my favorite was one where somebody I, I had Dean picking a lock, and somebody wrote a cranky review saying, "Well, obviously he didn't watch the show because Sam's the one who picks the locks." And then, like two weeks later, an episode aired with Dean picking a lock on the show, and I was like, "Vindication!" <laughs> um, but, uh, um, and I also, I also made a major screw. I got Dean's eye color wrong in my first book, um, and so I, I totally may have coupled it in my second book, where I had somebody, uh, a woman he was flirting with, refer to his eyes by the wrong color that I use, and Dean thinking, "God, what kind of an idiot wouldn't tell what color my eyes are?" Jeez. <laughs> So that's amazing. Yeah, when I I, I own it when I screw up. I, <laughs> yeah, you got to. I mean, I screwed up your name in the beginning, so I own that. Exactly. <laughs> All right. You and everybody else. Yay! I'm with everybody. <laughs> yeah. 
So, um, is there a franchise that you have not written for but would like to? Oh, sure, tons. Um, uh, I I pitched. I actually, there's a couple that I pitched that just didn't go, didn't happen. Um, back back in the midst of prehistory, I pitched uh, a Quantum Leap book uh, for the the original Scott Bakula, Dean Stockwell version of Quantum Leap. Oh boy. Um, I pitched a Highlander novel. <gasps> came this close. There was they, they had one last. There was one book left in the Highlander contract, and they had three pitches. Mine was one of them. They went with one of the other two. Um, yeah. Um, and uh, what else? I would have loved to have written a Battlestar Galactica novel from the oh, from the yeah. two thousand three reboot. Um, and. Uh, and there's some others. I, I would have killed to write a homicide life on the street book, but when they uh, when they did novels of that, they went with an Edgar Award winning mystery author for some strange reason. <laughs> um, uh, so I was fine with that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of stuff floating around out there that I would that I would love to do. I haven't, hell, I'd love to write Star Wars. Um, I'm, I, I've actually been more excited about Star Traitor. Wars the last. Thing. Um, said that the last ten years or so than than uh, than I was before. I, it's funny. I was when Star Wars first came out in seventy seven when I was eight years old. Um, I was huge, like I was completely obsessed with Star Wars. That that fan that fandom burned really bright and then burned right out. <laughs> uh, I still enjoyed it, but I, I I I was never as big a fan as I was for those first couple of years after the first movie came out. Um. But uh, but there's there's a lot of stuff they've been doing with it that I'm really excited about and and I would love to write for Star Wars but it hasn't happened yet. Listen out, Star Wars yeah, folks! Star Wars. Go and reach out to oh, Keith. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Follow up question. Uh, yes. How about the newer Star Trek series? Are there any of those that you would like to write for? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm I'm actually I've actually written a Discovery story. Um, it just came out in Star Trek Explorer. The most recent issue, uh, issue nine, has a President Rillick story called Work Worth Doing. Oh, nice. Um, I love that which character. Which explores her backstory. I, okay, I, I literally wrote the book on the Federation presidency. My, my 2005 novel, Articles of the Federation, was about a year in the life of the Federation president. And, um, and, I, and I developed a whole bunch of stuff about the Federation government. Uh, so when when the character of the Federation president became a, support, a regular supporting character on Discovery in season four, I was over the moon, um, and and I loved the character of President Relic, and and I really was thrilled to get an opportunity to actually write about her. Um, uh, but yeah, I honestly the uh, there there are aspects of every single one of the new shows that I would love to take a shot at uh, as a fiction writer. Um, the, the discovery is especially ripe for uh, for storytelling possibilities since they jumped into the future. Um, I love Strange New Worlds just on principle, um, and uh, and both both Prodigy and Lower Decks are tremendous fun in completely different ways. Uh, and there 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 there's stuff they created for Picard, especially for season one, that would definitely be worth exploring at some point. Um, and, and for that matter, you know. I'm dying. I would love to get a chance to write about Worf's journey from where we saw him in Nemesis to where we saw him in Picard season three. Um, there's definitely a story or twelve there. <laughs> and, uh, um, but yeah, no, I'm 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 enjoying the hell out of everything pretty much that that Secret Hideout has been doing since 2017. 
Um, it hasn't all been perfect, but neither was any of the other stuff. <laughs> so, um, and I've been, I've been, I spent the last 12 years rewatching every single one of the, uh, of the older shows, uh, and writing about them for tour.com. I, I started, I did Next Generation initially from 2011 to 2013. Then I did Deep Space Nine. Then I went back into the original series. And then in, uh, since, tw since January of 2020, I did First Voyager and now Enterprise. I'm almost done with Enterprise. And, um, and it's, it's, it's been great, you know, just going through all that and, and writing about it and talking about it. And, and, and the comments have been great. Um, uh, Tor.com is, is, is the exception to the don't read the comments rule. Um, they, uh, the, the comment section is gen is genuinely fun and, and full of interesting conversation. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, but it's also shown, you know, every single one of the first five shows also had major problems as well. Um, and, and it, and it was especially, it's especially hilarious to me hearing like when discovery started airing in 2017 in particular, not just that people were complaining about it, but they were making the exact same complaints about it that they were making in 2001 when Enterprise came on the air, except now they were accepting Enterprise as part of what when Star Trek was good. It's like, this yeah. isn't like what it was between 87 and 2005. It's like, wait a minute. I thought Enterprise was like this horrible thing that you couldn't bear to be part of Star Trek. And now you're saying it is. And, and it'll happen again with, you know, 20 years from now when they create a new Star Trek show. This isn't as good as Discovery was. Um, <laughs> yeah. They can be so insufferable uh, sometimes. Yes. But I mean, and, and honestly, this has happened every single time there's been a new Star Trek. There has been a, a vocal group of people who think that this isn't real Star Trek and they're ruining what came before, starting with the motion picture. You know, the a lot of the arguments people were making about Discovery are they were also making about the motion picture. The technology's all wrong. The um, Klingons look different. Well, what? what? Right, exactly. Um, and I pointed that out when I reviewed the first episode of Discovery. It's like, yes, this is this is we we are dealing with Star Trek in a in a format that you now have to pay for, uh, in which the technology all looks completely different, in which the Klingons especially look different. And I am of course talking about the motion picture. <laughs> um <laughs> And yeah, uh, and people complained about Next Gen when it came on the air that, oh, no, you can't possibly do Star Trek without Kirk, Spock, and McCoy. And then Deep Space Nine came on. You can't possibly do a Star Trek show that's not on a starship. See, um, I'm from Texas, so all I heard, all I heard was, black guy, no, oh, no. Man. Wow. Um, yeah, you think I'm kidding? I'm really not. No, I know you're not. No, I know you're not. Uh, and, and, well, that's that's another complaint that I find especially hilarious. Like, when did Star Trek get woke? And my answer is 1966. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh! Anybody <laughs> who says that is just not watching the show. Yeah, yeah. And you still, well, you still hear it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> oh man! So you also happen to have a plethora of comic books that you've done. So what's the difference in the process of book writing the comic book? Heffy. What is a plethora? What is a plethora? It's like a lot of books. <laughs> it's a whole lot. Uh, it's not really a whole lot. I've written about 55 or so. The, the biggest comic book project I did was the, the, the Farscape comic. I, mm -hmm. I, uh, I did three, I'm sorry, five. No, how many? Six, four issue miniseries. Um, 
three of them were continuing the story after the Peacekeeper Wars, and then they were successful enough that we did an ongoing series that lasted for 24 issues. Um, and then uh, I also wrote three Dargo-focused miniseries, uh, Dargo's Lament, Dargo's Trial, and Dargo's Quest. And um, and I've also done a couple of Star Trek comics. I did a four-issue miniseries back in 2000. Um, I did a couple one-shots, the uh, Alien Spotlight Klingons uh, and the Captain's Log Jellico comics. Uh, I wrote a Cars four-issue miniseries uh, based on the Pixar film. Um, and I've done some others. Uh, <laughs> I think you might I own that too. <laughs> oh, okay. No, I'm, I'm, I don't. I don't. Oh, okay. I, I'm very vocal. I'm a very vocal anti-cars person, but that's okay. Gotcha. Um, it was actually a real challenge to write that because the cars are just faces, really. Yeah. It's really hard to write a comic book for a character who is basically just a car. There's no body language. There's no nothing. It's just a face. I'm Lightning McQueen got a funny feeling in his exhaust. <laughs> is my spark plug going off? <laughs> wow. It was it was fascinating. Anyway, um the the it's a completely different storytelling format and um and you're not doing it all yourself either. Uh you're you're depending on the artist to to do at least half the work. And um, it's more and and because and it's usually for the most part it's a very prescribed format, especially if you're doing a a, a monthly comic book where you're only doing like 22 pages or or the the comic book that of mine that's coming out right now is a Resident Evil comic book. Speaking of video games, oh. um, uh, called uh, Infinite Darkness: The Beginning, which is the prequel to the Netflix animated series that came out in 2021. Um, and and in that case, it's only 20 pages, and so you have to. You have to tell your story in 20 pages. You don't have any wiggle room the way you do with prose. Um, and I also tend to treat each page as a discrete storytelling unit. Um, so I try to make sure that like the page as a whole is telling part of the story all by itself. Or sometimes a double page spread if you're doing it that way. But you know you have to think visually and you have to really pare the story down. Um, in the same way you have to do with the short story, but even more so. Um, you know, in a novel, you can have digressions and, and weird subplots and, and extra stuff. Uh, in a comic book, you really have to boil everything down to the essentials. Um, but it's fun. I enjoy working. I don't get to work in the medium nearly often enough, quite frankly. Um, I, uh, I enjoy it when I do. Um, I've done, like I said, I did the, I did Farscape. I did a few Star Trek. I did Cars. I did a, a graphic novel adaptation of a science fiction novel called Icarus by Gregory A. Wilson. Um, and uh, and I'm doing the Resident Evil one now. I'm actually right now adapting a novel that I co-wrote, uh, a serial killer novel called Animal that I wrote with uh, Dr. Manish K. Batra. Uh, came out in 2021. And uh, we're doing a graphic novel adaptation that J.K. Woodward is doing the art for. Um, wow. J.K. also has done a lot of Star Trek stuff for, uh, yeah. for IDW. Yeah. He did the uh, Doctor Who Star Trek crossover uh, he did. He actually did the the both both the uh, IDW Star Trek comics I did uh, the Klingon Alien Spotlight and the Jellico uh, one shot were both by him as well. Wow. Uh, and he's done a bunch of others. I think he did the Pike one and and some other stuff. He's uh, he's so, a great guy. He's uh, and he'll be at Trek Long Island by the way. Um, oh nice! Oh, yeah, people for us to um, hang out with. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um. Um, kind of peering at your bookshelf behind you, what uh, what authors inspire you? Um, 
a lot of different ones. Um, I, the, the, all the ones I mentioned earlier that I was that I read from from when I was a, a Ute, um, Le Guin and uh, Tolkien and Heinlein, um, uh, Harlan Ellison. Um, who else? I'm like blanking on all the name people I've read growing up. Um, a lot of. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, a lot of comic book writers too were big influence. Uh, I, I read a lot of. Uh, I, I I I was the Marvel comics of the early 1980s were a big influence on me. The the Chris Claremont X Men, the John Byrne Fantastic Four, uh, J M DeMattis's work on on Captain America and Marvel Team Up and the Defenders, um, and uh, Roger Stern, Anno Senti, Louis Simonson, uh, Tom DeFalco, uh, Bill Mantlo, Roger Stern, all those guys. Um, uh that was that was a pretty big influence um Le Guin definitely she was both both as a fiction writer and as a non-fiction writer um I the okay I have over the course of my career met and sometimes worked with a lot of very big names in in science fiction fantasy and comic books the only time I turned into a quivering mass of fan gooberishness idiocy was when I met Ursula Le Guin uh it was at a reader con in uh, I don't know, late '90s, I think, uh, and I—I I was just a complete dunderhead when I met her. Uh, nobody else. I've—I've—I've I've, I've met. I've worked with Harlan Ellison. I've worked with uh, John Romita. I've worked with Stan Lee. Uh, oh. I, I all sorts of of yeah, Robert Silverberg. Um, all sorts of people. Um, I got Harlan Ellison and Robert Silver. I was I edited a story that Harlan Ellison and Robert Silver collaborated on at a time when they were not speaking to each other. Um, <laughs> which, which I still number as one of my my greater uh, editorial accomplishments. Um, but uh, and and I, uh, Roger Zelazny, um, Robert Sheckley, um, uh, people I I loved growing up like Michael Jan Friedman, Peter David, uh, Robert Greenberger. Uh, um, Vonda McIntyre, Diane Duane, uh, all wound up becoming friends and colleagues uh, when when I when I became a professional in the field, and and I'm fine. Yeah, and Le Guin's the only one I turned into a gibbering idiot. In front of. Uh, we have a quick comment from VHS Jace. What an incredible oh, career Keith has had. Very well, I, don't 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 pass tense that. I'm still I'm still going. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it, Jace! You're embarrassing us. <laughs> That's our no, I, founder, I, 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 you know, it's possible that it won't get any better from here. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, no working actually working working with Stan Lee was one of the great pleasures of my life. Um, he was a joy to work with. Um, that persona was not an act; he was really like that. Oh wow! Um, and my my favorite memory of Stan was at San Diego Comic Con, and I want to say 1997 um and we took him out to took him and his wife uh out to dinner and it was a whole staff of us who were uh working for byron price who, who were at the convention how is stan spending this dinner with one of his clients is he talking business no he is sitting next to byron's then eight-year-old daughter playing with the action figures that she had bought on the show floor that day oh my gosh oh my God. this is how he spent his business dinner yeah that's amazing. Yeah, that it's so amazing. cool. Yeah. Yeah. yeah um, I, 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 sorry. And, I got, I got it. I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I got it. 
Well, the other great thing about working with him is that he never, the only time he, the closest he came to missing a deadline was when he turned something in early. He always, he did, he wrote a bunch of introductions for me uh, for the various Marvel anthologies we did. And, you know, we would talk about it, about, you know, what he was going to do and how he was going to write it and this, that, and the other thing. And then he, he, if, if he didn't, the only time he didn't turn it in on time was when it was early. He never missed a deadline. Uh, he was an absolute joy to work with. Um, wow. But you were going to ask on the Jason. Around the, yeah, around the 2016 or 2015, I got to meet Stanley. And he was so sweet, even with his entourage, like, oh, Mr. Lee, you have to go. You have to go. You have to, don't talk to Mr. Lee. You know, people would come by and say, thank you for making Spider-Man. He go, don't mention it. It's one of my favorite things. I just, he was just such a sweet guy. At, at one of the years at San Diego, he was signing it <laughs> off and Cat. he wouldn't leave. You know, he, like, he wanted to make sure everybody got their autograph. Wow. What a guy. Uh, speaking of cons, um, as you know, Folks know you and I met at the Farscape panel. Uh, we co-moderated that. It was my first time, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do that with the WinterCon folks. Um, but I've got to ask, because you're a fan, too, is it a weird transition to go to a convention and be like, oh, I'm here to see – oh, no, no, no. I, people are here to see me. Is that like a, a weird thing for you to adjust to? Adjust to? It was at first. I mean, I, I I went to conventions. I started going to conventions in high school, uh, mostly just like little rinky dink creation shows here in New York. And then uh, and then I went. I started going to uh, Icon out on Long Island uh, in when I was in college in the late eighties. Um, and uh, so yeah, I would I would go to you know comic cons a lot and just go there to you know meet meet actors, meet authors comic book writers and such and then uh and it was great and then yeah to transition from that into no i'm i'd like you know now i'm the person people are coming to see is was was very weird at first i'm used to it by now it's been you know 30 years but, <laughs> uh but it's it's still i mean it's still great and i still love the fact that i get to go to conventions and meet cool people like that you know um uh, and be know, the cool I, person I mean, that people come to meet. <laughs> also that, yeah, yes, yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm. That that's still a little weird to me, but I've pretty much come to accept it because it keeps happening. So, um, but I, but I love, I love going to conventions. I love the 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 direct feedback that you get, um, and you know, being able to, both being able to connect with people who've read my work and you know connect with them more directly and also to introduce my work to people who may not have heard it heard of me before um which is much more common but um you know it's like who are you um well i wrote this book um <laughs> what is book <laughs> yes. well, they're, they're, those people usually just walk away but um <laughs> but there there are plenty of readers out there it's like oh well you know I love, I love fantasy. I love serial killer books. I love supernatural. I love, you know, the supernatural books are great. I, I love the, all three of my supernatural books are still in print. Um, they came out in 2007, 2008 and 2010, and they're still, still going. Um, and that fandom is very intense. And, and I love having those books on my table when I have a table at a time, cause it's like table catnip. It's like, Oh, look, seven <laughs> Um, that always draws people over. So, oh, what about the encrypted work? Because I picked up your your uh, Jersey Devil book, and that is amazing. It's a lot of fun. I live in Jersey now. 
And that's one of the things that like I was most curious. Like, What's all about the Jersey Devil? And your book actually gave me more insight than Google did. So a big thanks to you on that. Um, that, uh, that story takes place in the same setting as an urban fantasy series I'm doing, um, which, which Eastbeck book is going to be re-releasing. Uh, the, I had to switch publishers on that. Um, I've written the, the first book was called A Furnace Sealed, and it came out in 2019. Uh, the second book is called Feet of Clay, and that'll be out hopefully in 2024 if all goes well, along with the reissue of A Furnace Sealed. And they take place in the Bronx, actually, uh, which is where I'm from. Mm -hmm. um, Spent a lot of time. Because nobody ever writes about the Bronx. It's always Manhattan south of 125th Street. Maybe Brooklyn if they want to get edgy. But otherwise, it's like the outer, the, the outer boroughs are like Queens, the Bronx, and Staten Island are always ignored. Northern Manhattan's always ignored. And it's like, screw that. I won't. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a lot of cool stuff here. So, um, uh but the 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 Jersey Devil book that you bought uh, takes place in the same setting, just with a different main character. Because the uh, my my guy Brown Gold works in the Bronx. This and this needed to take place obviously in Central Jersey. So, <laughs> but uh, that's that particular book was part of a series called Systema Paradoxa, which uh, Eastbeck Books, uh, the publisher, uh, one of the publishers I work with, uh, is doing in conjunction with a company called Cryptid Crate which is a subscription service uh, that has information and tchotchkes and stuff about cryptids, uh, including these books. Um, it's uh, the series, God, it's up, I think they're up to 20 books by now. Um, and uh, I'm under contract to do another one uh, with the same, it's probably gonna have the same main character, um, but it's supposed to involve the Beast of Sherman because they're trying to go through some of the more obscure cryptids too. Oh. Well, I'm from Westchester, so if if you ever want to do a Skinwalker one, we'll talk. <laughs> Jace, do you have any? We have the Goat Man here. The Goat Man. The Goat Man. Yeah, the Goat Man. It's uh, he would uh, he would what's the word I'm looking for? He would harass uh teenagers who would park at this one place near Fort Worth and jump on their cars and go. Eh, 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 I guess I don't know. But he would uh he would harass people at Lover's Lane. So there you go. Get a little bit of, you know, fun, fun things in your book. <laughs> uh, we have a comment from uh, Keith Ra. Uh see, Dito. See, look, I, I don't I feel vindicated. Somebody else uh, said it wrong, spelled it wrong. So <laughs> from Star Trek, I have his books. Burning House, Killing Burning on House, Empire. Cal Hudson book, too many old ones too. Old so you got fans that are popping in to say hello. From C. Jones. The the a burning house was the last book that featured the IKS Gorkon. That was uh, we rebranded it as Klingon Empire in the hopes of the Wiku sales because the third book didn't do very well. Mm. Um, it didn't work. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I was very proud of a burning house. That one, uh, it had the crew. Uh, the the ship had been badly damaged in the, in the previous book. So it was putting in for repairs. And so the crew was scattered to the nine winds on shore leave. So I got to portray different aspects of Klingon life that we don't really get to see on screen very much. Um, we got to see a Klingon farm. We got to see a Klingon opera company. We got to see a Klingon slum. Uh, we got to see a Klingon medical conference, which was very strange. Um, <laughs> was there a Klingon therapist there by any chance? There was not. Oh. Um, that's a bit but, that's know. why you that's why it didn't sell well um <laughs> uh, and and there was the usual political intrigue and and weird intelligence stuff and and it was just i i, I wanted to take a broader look at what like life is like in the empire um and i was very pleased with how it turned out 
Uh, it actually, and it sold decently, but not, and sold certainly sold better than the, the previous one did. But um, uh, that was that was pretty much the last one. The Cal Hudson book that that they're referring to is um, uh, I did a series, I did a two book series called The Brave and the Bold, which was basically Starship Team Up. Mm. Um, I there was a prelude with Enterprise, uh, and then uh, the other four uh, then extant TV shows, um, I did. Uh, Kirk's Enterprise teaming up with Matt Decker and the Constellation about a year before the Doomsday Machine. Oh. Um, the Doomsday Machine made it clear that, you know, Decker and Kirk knew each other. Yes. Um, yes. So this was their, so I established their first meeting a year earlier. Um, I had the DS9 crew teaming up with the USS Odyssey, which was the ship that the Jem'Hadar blew up in the episode of the Jem'Hadar. Basically a story that takes us right, right before um, that episode. Uh, where it was established that they had been par- uh, patrolling the Cardassian border, um, so uh, so I did a, I did the basically the lead into that, um, and then uh, Voyager was sort of a double team up because it took place before uh, Caretaker, so it told the story of exactly how and why Tuvok infiltrated the Maquis. Mm. So it had Voyager teaming up with the USS Hood, Voyager on a shakedown crew still, and. Cal Hudson's Maquis cell teaming up with Chakotay's Maquis cell. Oh, wow. What an intertwined uh, story. Yeah. Uh, and then the last bit was the the Enterprise-E, Picard and the Enterprise-E teaming up with my Klingon crew, uh, the, the Gorkon crew. Um, and the object, and, and in each case, the point of view characters were the other crew. So mm. it was, it was sh- showing how the characters were familiar with uh, were seen by other people in Starfleet or in or other Maquis or other or how the Klingons saw them, you know. Um, and that was that was a fun little exercise. Uh, it's the only time I've actually written uh, the original series crew, um, and uh, and and it was fun. It was uh, it was especially fun doing the the various Maquis people uh, and the the weird. You know politics of terrorism there. Um, <laughs> the politics of terrorism, and, <laughs> uh, and just coming up and like filling out the crews of, of the constellation and the Odyssey and the uh, and the Hood. Yeah, um, was was a lot of fun just coming up with different characters. So speaking of uh, intertwined tales, um, a few years ago, Pocket Books started uh, doing these gigantic crossover arcs, and I can't remember what the first one was, but it was. Um, Four books. Uh, there's the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager, and they did this, this, these th- four linked novels about um, this alien race that had come through, and they kind of continue that for a few years. And I'm segging very badly into Gateways, which you took part in. So um, I do have this up here to show that yes, I do read. Um, <laughs> so my question, I, I've always been curious how something like this is. Uh, put together and organized because you have Diane Carey, you have Peter David, uh, you have you and a bunch of other authors all participating in the formation of these books. And I think Gateways was probably the biggest one that came out of this uh, this crossover period. So can you give us a give us a look inside the biz and tell us how something like this was organized and what kind of notes did Pocket Books give you? Um, the first, the one you were thinking of, the first one was called Invasion. Invasion, uh, yes. Yeah, that was in 1996. 
And um, remember the Deep Space Nine one was my favorite because that it did this bit about finding the Defiant inside of a comet, and it's millions of years old. And I just thought that was the most haunting, depressing thing I'd ever heard because they find his <laughs> body like still in stasis, and it's just like, yeah. oh my gosh, it's terrible. Um, <laughs> in the best way. The, uh, they 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 tend to be you know editorially directed to some extent or other. Um, the uh, the concept of invasion was was come uh, was conceived by John Ordover, who was one of the editors at, at Pocket at the time, and um, and the same thing with with the others. He would uh, a lot of them he developed in conjunction with with one of the other authors. Um, usually, it would start with a basic concept, um, and then they would bring in people to do the different uh, pieces, uh, and um, a, a lot of them weren't that actually gateways was was one of the more aggressively crossovery ones uh like invasion and day of honor and the captain's table everybody got to do more or less their own story um the uh uh they were they were linked but and and they were thematically linked but they weren't like each each book told its own story for the most part um double helix was a bit more um uh that was that was that was a bit more one story to the next, but uh, there, there was a, there was a through line there, but it was it was not it was pretty vague. Um, Gateways was a bit more of a, an aggressive crossover, at least with the twenty fourth century segments. Um, we we started with an original series story, um, and, and it involved the Iconian gateways that were established in uh, uh, the Next Generation episode Contagion, and also seen on DS 9s to the Death, and they they worked in. There was a bit in an original series episode called "That Which Survives," where the Enterprise was sent very, very far, very fast, uh, and they just and we basically retconned that into being uh, an older version of those gateways, which were orbital, um, and through which uh, a, a whole ship could go through, as opposed to a person. Um, so we did that, and in that case, the the original series part was was a prelude. They were developing a challenger series that spun out of the new earth miniseries that diane carey was working on that wound up not happening for a variety of reasons uh but at the time it was considered part of it so that diane did her own story so those, those two were sort of preludes that were all on their own and then the next gen ds9 uh and new frontier stories were more closely linked to each other in terms of because they were all happening at the same time uh so we coordinated those stories uh as best we could with each other Voyager, not so much because they were far away, um, but um, but we all like we talked to each other. Um, me, me, Peter, Bob, uh, Peter, David did the New Frontier. Obviously, I did DS Nine. Bob Greenberger did Next Generation. Christy Golden did Voyager, uh, and we were in touch with each other uh, and and just making sure you know everything was was consistent. Uh, and there was one scene that me, Peter, and Bob wrote together. So there's a there's a hollow conference scene where uh everybody's getting their mission that that same scene is told from three different points of view it's in it's in the next gen book it's in the ds9 book and it's in the new frontier book and we wrote that together <laughs> uh bob 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 peter and i sat in the bar at uh, the farpoint convention at the the now defunct unfortunately hunt valley inn in in uh uh Cokiesville, maryland and we hashed out how the scene was going to go um Bob did a draft of it uh, for his book, and then we 
adapted those for ours, making sure. And I, I was the one who went through it at the end and made sure everything was consistent. All the dialogue was the same. Um, and we made it work. Uh, and that was fun. That was just, you know, especially, especially for me, because that was, again, Bob, Bob and Peter are people who I read as a kid. You know, I was a teenager reading comic books and I was enjoying Peter David's comics and, and Bob's comics. And so getting and now and now they're like friends and colleagues. You know, I mean, I was at Peter's wedding for crying out loud. Ooh. But um, that was, you know, just getting to do that was just a real thrill. Um, and, you know, I've gotten uh, so that that that's how that worked. <laughs> um <laughs> It was it was a bit chaotic at times, but uh, we made it work. Um, All right, and then we've got and uh, I had and I had a, I had a uh, I had a um, in addition to being part of the crossover, I was also writing the fourth book in the post finale DS Nine series because uh, Paramount gave Simon and Schuster permission to basically continue the story of Deep Space Nine on their own because they there were no plans to revisit it uh, on screen at that point. Um, so we pretty much had carte blanche to do whatever the hell we wanted, uh, at least up to a point. And um, they wound up doing that uh, with all of the, the series because uh, from, from basically from when Voyager was canceled up until in, in 2001, up until uh, Picard debuted in 2020, on-screen Trek wasn't doing the 24th century at all. They were they were doing the 22nd century with Enterprise and then the 23rd with both the Bad Robot movies and Discovery. Um, so the, the the we pretty much had free reign to do whatever the hell we wanted in the 24th century. Um, that changed once Picard debuted and then Lower Decks debuted and then Discovery vaulted forth to the 32nd century. And all of a sudden, Star Trek was moving forward again on screen. So they uh, we, we were unable to continue with that. But... Um, but it was a lot of fun, uh, and and developing uh, the DS 9s uh, storyline past what you leave behind was was a great experience. Amazing. Um, what? Um, hey, what? Geek hey. Filter says hello, and then we had uh, C Jones. They were interesting books. Thank you, sir. Like the world of Deep Space Nine, book two. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you got a, a good little following. It's amazing. The Worlds of Deep Space Nine was a really nifty idea. It was it was six novels in three books, uh, six short novels in three books. So the the each book was pretty thick, and each one looked at a particular world that was important to Deep Space Nine. Um, I did Ferenginar. Mm. <laughs> I bet that was fun. So, oh yeah, well I, I I had at that point pretty much gotten a reputation as the Klingon guy. So I wanted to do something that was 180 degrees from the Klingons. <laughs> so I did the Ferengi. And that was I I had a blast with that. The it was it was tremendous fun. Is there any like Ferengi in and out that you like? Did you write all the rules of acquisition and then use it as a guide preface for what you're doing? I had a list to work with. I actually made up a couple too. Um uh because, I mean, there's plenty. There's plenty of uh, numbers that have not been assigned yet. Um, uh, one of them, what I, I one of them was one I stole. Like, a lot of the rules of acquisitions are just you know human cliches reworked. Uh, and one of them was it ain't over till it's over. Um, <laughs> Yogi Berra. 
Yes. Yes. Um, and also uh, the, another one that I that I came up with was uh, he who dives under the table lives to see another day or something like that. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, and 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 I tried to make use of the existing ones as well. Uh, so. All right, Keith. Thank you so much for spending over an hour with us in the Captain's Quadrant. I we really are grateful, Jason, uh, and I appreciate everything that you all the time that you've given us and your matcher works. Um, you were nominated for some awards as well, and hopefully we're going to be speaking to you, and you'll be uh, the great winner of some great writing, uh, awards soon. Where would people be able to buy your works? Uh, all my stuff's available from all the usual online book dealers, um, uh, Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, Kobo, uh, or that you know some of them are available at bookstores still, um, and you can get the eBooks as well uh, from any legitimate dealer. Uh, if you want to find me online, just search for my name. I am the only Keith R. A. DeCandido that will turn up in a Google search. Um, uh, I am. I am. Excuse me. I am active on Facebook, uh, on the site. I insist on still calling Twitter. Uh, I'm also on Blue Sky. I don't know oh. if that's going to actually turn into a thing, but I'm there. It, it's uh, okay to dead name Twitter. It's okay. Yeah. Um, uh, and I'm on, um, on Instagram as well. Uh, I have a blog because I'm old, um, <laughs> which is decandido.wordpress.com. Um I write regularly for Tor.com. I do a lot of pop culture commentary for them. I have a YouTube channel which, in which I've been reading my short fiction, which I started up during the apocalypse of 2020. Um, I've, I've read most of my short fiction uh, at this point uh, on that channel. And um, I have a Patreon, uh, which I urge everybody to support, uh, where I do movie reviews, TV reviews, uh, excerpts from my works in progress, uh, vignettes featuring my original characters, uh, first looks at my first draft, and also cat pictures. Oh, oh there you go. One Jason. Yeah. Approved. Approved. For $2 a month, you get regular cat pictures, plus the occasional dog picture. Um, but mostly pictures of our two cats. But we there, there are guest cats and guest dogs that show up periodically <laughs> um, when, we, when we visit other people. Uh, and, and for that $2 a month, you also get a monthly movie review, uh, which is the $1 tier. It's like... But you should get it. It's patreon.com slash crad, K-R-A-D, my initials. Um, I have a bunch of stuff out now, including uh, a bunch of anthologies. Um, the four somethings of the apocalypse... Uh, which I co-edited with my wife, Ren Sims, and which we also published through our very small press, Whisperwood. Um, it has stories by Shauna McGuire, Jonathan Mayberry, David Mack, uh, Michael Jan Friedman, Robert Greenberger, Peter David, um, Dayton Morton, Kevin Dilmore, uh, Derek Tyler Attico, um, David Gerald, um, the, the creator of the Tribbles himself. Uh, and a bunch of other people, uh, all with alternate takes on the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So we have the four PTA moms of the Apocalypse, the four <laughs> lunch ladies of the Apocalypse, the four customer service representatives of the Apocalypse. Uh, David Mack wrote about the four Hollywood executives of the Apocalypse. Uh. <laughs> um, uh, and so on. Um, and uh, that's that's out now. Uh, I have stories in... Jonathan Mayberry's uh, two two uh, anthologies edited by Jonathan Mayberry. One is called uh, Joe Ledger Unbreakable, which he edited with Brian Thomas Schmidt. Uh, 
there's new stories in Jonathan's Joe Ledger techno thriller universe um, that he let other people basically play in his sandbox. So uh, I wrote a story about Ledger. Le, uh, the, the main character, Joe Ledger, uh, currently leads a team, a uh, covert ops team that deals with weird science stuff. Um, but before that, he was a detective for the Baltimore City Police. So I did a story of him during his time as that. It was basically my excuse to write a homicide episode, more or less. Um, and uh, and there's also a, an anthology that just came out called The Good, the Bad, and the Uncanny, Tales of a Very Weird West. It is full of weird Western stories. And I wrote uh, the team up that, uh, a team up between two Wild West, two Old West legends, uh, Bass Reeves and Calamity Jane. Mm. And there is a fantastical twist on it. There is also an appearance by Sheriff Seth Bullock and uh lots of seminal legends and gunfighting and horses and all that good stuff so and drinking there's a lot of drinking <laughs> um but you should check that out it's also got some wonderful uh there's some great stuff uh in that one um uh greg cox another trek author uh has a story in there called bigfoot gorge um uh aaron rosenberg uh a bunch of other people uh, have stories in there. Uh, Josh Mallerman, uh, Jeff Marriott, he's also written for Star Trek and has done a lot of uh, weird Western stuff in his career. So uh, definitely check those out. And I just signed a deal to do a new fantasy series called Supernatural Crimes Unit, which Ooh. is about a division of the NYPD that deals with crimes involving magic and monsters. Uh, it's going to be published by Weird Tales Presents, which is a new imprint uh, from Blackstone Publishing. Uh, it'll be out in either late 2024 or early 2025, depending on whether I turn the book in on time or not, because I'm writing <laughs> it. But, uh, uh, Harness but, your uh, inner Stanley. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, it's not due until the end of January. I'm fine. Uh, so, uh, and, and I got other stuff coming out as well. So just look me up. <laughs> Amazing. We're gonna have oh, and and I'll have more, and I've got more stuff in Star Trek Explorer. I should mention, uh, you know, particularly the Trek stuff. I've had three stories so far. Um, one is called "You Can't Buy Fate," which is a Noggin as Redact story, which is going to be reprinted in the collection called "The Mission and Other Stories" by Titan in early 2024. Uh, I had a story, the one I mentioned before, the Discovery story with President Relic called "Work Worth Doing" is in issue nine. Uh, in issue eight, I had a story called uh, "The Collidian Kidnapping," which is a Voyager story. Uh, in which Janeway is kidnapped and Tuvok and Neelix have to rescue her. Um, Tuvix. And then I got no, <laughs> no, separately they have to. Um, and uh, and then I've got two more coming out. Uh, one is called the Serious Snarl, and one is called uh, Attempted Break In. And they'll be uh, out in the summer and the fall. Amazing! Amazing. All of those links will be down below, and you can reach him at the Patreon. Be sure to do so. Follow him on all the wonderful socials. Those will be down below in the podcast notes. If you are listening to our podcast, please give us a five-star rating. That would be greatly appreciated. And be sure to check Keith out wherever you can get your books. And when you go to conventions, be sure to look out for Keith. Be polite and ask for his autograph. Very nice guy. He's a lot of fun to talk to. And we appreciate you stopping by. I am going to also say you can check out that uh, panel that we were talking about over on our sister channel to be seen. 
You can check that out. We had a great chat with the cast and writer uh, Rockney from Farscape, um, who you've written with as well. With well, yes, yeah, we um, we collaborated on the comic book that I was talking about before. He he provided the he provided the plots for most of it, uh, and then the last twelve issues we plotted together, and I scripted all of it. So. Amazing, amazing. Well, that's gonna do it for us. He was great life. to work with too. He really I'm was. sure. I'm sure he's a super nice guy. He's a super nice guy. Uh Jason, thanks so much. Uh, Jason, thank Keith, so much. once again, you're amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. We will talk again soon. And to everybody else, have a great night. And we will see you after the new year because we are gonna take Christmas off. So what are we going to do on the agony booth though? Do we know yet? Oh, we're gonna do a short. You guys can check out our shorts and check out the agony booth. So. Oh. Yeah. Very well. There we go. It'll be season five of the Captain Squadron. Good this night. is this is like reading a novel and not having an ending, and they expect you to buy another book. 